And this is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Masella. And I'm Margaret Flint. Well, Margaret, we're continuing to see some interesting shifts in the wind when it comes to health reform and healthcare law after a very rocky start with the health insurance exchanges and continued political pushbacks. The first open enrollment period under the Affordable Care Act exceeded the administration's expectation, signing up over 7 million Americans for health coverage. Well, certainly there was a learning curve in navigating the online portals, but in the end, you know, I think it was good old-fashioned deadline pressure that did the trick. All in all, it's been a huge learning curve for everyone watching all these events unfold and the uh, dim days of early January when nothing seemed to be working now seem far behind us. And I think as more Americans have learned about the health care law and what it means for them, their opinions are going to change as well. A recent poll shows some 50% of the nation thinks favorably about the health care law now. That's up from 40% just a few short months ago in spite of all the snafus with the online portals. Well, at the same time, a poll of doctors around the country shows a pretty unfavorable view of Congress. While there was a bipartisan deal to fix the sustainable growth rate formula for reimbursing practices for Medicare patients, Congress ended up passing another emergency funding measure instead. This is the 17th time Congress has passed an emergency bill to keep the reimbursement rates intact, but, Mark, it's just not a solution, and it's getting kind of old. The fix, which has approved by a number of physician groups around the country, would have cost about $180 billion over 10 years' time, and Congress simply couldn't agree on where that money would come from. But it's an extremely important issue, Margaret. 10,000 Americans per day turn 65, adding to the Medicare patient load. So it's time to repeal the flawed SGR and find a permanent solution. Well, and Congress also just kicked the can down the road by delaying implementation of the ICD-10 for another year, which was a result of pressure on Congress to not rock the boat. And we're still looking for a solution to the health care cost issue. At close to 20% of the nation's GDP, it's a crippling weight on family finances and on future growth in our economy. And our guest today heads an organization that is seeking meaningful payment reform in health care as one approach to containing health care costs. Francois Debrant is director of the Healthcare Incentive Improvement Institute, and his organization just released a report card on health pricing transparency. And 45 states across the country got a failing grade. We have much work to do there. Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org, will look at another false claim spoken about health policy in the public domain. And no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, you can email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love hearing from you. And we'll get to our interview with Francois DeBrant in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. 7.1 million and counting. The last minute push leading up to the March 31st open enrollment deadline on the insurance exchanges saw business really amp up. The administration had originally targeted the 7 million number for the first open enrollment under the Affordable Care Act, but continued problems with the federal exchange, which serves 36 states around the country, looked to derail that number. And a number of states with their own exchanges were also having some serious issues, including Oregon, whose site never really worked properly, and Maryland as well. That state has decided to scrap their system entirely and adopt a system developed by Access Health CT CEO Kevin Cunahan in Connecticut. That system worked essentially flawlessly and needed very little retrofitting. 
Kevin Cunahan expects other states will seek to adopt the Connecticut exchange design as well. Meanwhile, there are millions more newly insured Americans who are hiding in plain sight. According to a report in the New York Times, millions of customers opted to purchase insurance on their own through private insurers instead of the exchanges. Big insurers like WellPoint and Highmark say they saw significant business privately off of the insurance exchanges. While the president greeted the enrollment news with a statement that the health care law is, quote, here to stay, potential 2016 presidential contender Paul Ryan is still vowing to repeal the law. Meanwhile, no doc fix this year, though there was a much lauded bipartisan plan in place to replace the sustainable growth rate formula for Medicare reimbursement for practices serving seniors. There was no agreement on how to fund the fix, so it's been delayed for another year. And so have plans for the ICD-10 switch that was supposed to happen in October of this year. The House managed to get a one-year delay into the SGR bill, which passed in the Senate as well. A number of medical groups are opposed to being forced to switch. And want to protect against heart disease and cancer? A couple of large studies point to vitamin D as a good hedge against both conditions. The studies done at Harvard, Oxford, and other universities found adults with lower levels of the vitamin in their system had a 35% increased risk of death from heart disease and a 14% greater likelihood of death from cancer. Supplements aren't always the best solution, according to the studies, which found that D3 found in certain fish and from direct sunlight were the most effective sources. I'm Arianna O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with health economist Francois DeBrant, executive director of the Healthcare Incentive Improvement Institute, a not-for-profit organization focused on improving healthcare through targeted models of payment reform. Previously, Mr. DeBrant was the program leader for various healthcare initiatives at GE Corporate Healthcare Programs and was responsible for the implementation of GE's active consumer strategy. Mr. DeBrant also has spoken and written extensively on health economics in numerous public Publications, including Health Affairs, in his recent ebook, It's the Incentives, Stupid, Why Rotten Incentives Continue to Screw Up Healthcare. He earned his master's in finance and economics at the University of Paris and earned his MBA at the Tuck School of Business Administration at Dartmouth College. Mr. DeBrant, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you. Francois, your organization released a pretty damning report on the state of price transparency in the healthcare in this country ranking 45 out of 50 states with failing grades. And, and you call this lack of price transparency in healthcare one of the most overlooked consumer protection measures we face. So why is transparency so important? And while we want to hear about the states that are failing, tell us about also the states that have been doing well on it. So why, why is it important? Well, principally because the uh, percentage of consumers who are paying a significant percentage of medical expenses out of pocket has risen dramatically over the past decade and is scheduled to continue to rise over the next as uh, high deductible health plans and other consumer directed health plans proliferate so as a result of which i think there's been a growing disconnect between the role that consumers have assumed in managing healthcare expenses and the lack of information about the prices of healthcare services. So whereas in pretty much any other purchase, uh, you get to know the price of a good before a product before you, you buy it, uh, today in healthcare, that's simply not the case. 
And unfortunately, unless states take very proactive action to assemble data so that they can offer this information free of charge to individuals, it's unlikely that they're going to get it in any other way. So the states that have been doing a really good job are the ones who have passed legislation enabling what are called all-payer claims databases, which collect information from all the health plans operating in that state. So I think you know any state that has that legislation enacted is a model. But beyond enacting legislation, you have to implement it, and you have to turn it into something that's digestible to consumers. And here the exemplar last year was New Hampshire. Unfortunately, this year uh, they got a failing grade because they, sh- they, they changed vendors at some point last year, and their website has been down since then. So, I, you know, we, we're trying to really do this looking at it from the consumer's eyes. I mean, this is really what we're trying to do now is look at healthcare information and what's available through the consumer's eyes. And unfortunately, through that lens, there is no state in the country that actually does a model job. Well, I look at the work that you're doing, and we think about Stephen Brill's work, who we had on the show, who wrote Bitter Pill, Why Healthcare Costs Are Killing Us. He really outlined this gross lack of price transparency and the wildly different prices that are paid. And I think maybe consumers thought there might be a big difference between people and institutions, but when it comes down to things like the device itself, you know, the uh, the joint replacement, I think people are very shocked by those discrepancies. I guess the question is, beyond knowledge, what do we see in terms of action? Do we have any evidence to suggest, as we look at the states, where there has been uh, more transparency or those few states with a passing grade, is there any evidence to suggest that it makes a difference yeah, it's a great question, and um, transparency in itself isn't the magic bullet that everyone always seems to look for in, in solving healthcare problems, but it certainly is uh, one of the silver pellets in a shotgun. The proof, at least early evidence from New Hampshire's work, suggests that variability in prices does decrease when you have pricing transparency, and that shouldn't surprise us a whole heck of a lot. Because if you're an outlier, if you're really expensive relative to your peers, and everyone now knows it, you're going to have a lot of more questions to answer than if no one knows about it. And so invariably, price transparency has that effect. So it does have an effect. But again, it's only a partial solution because ultimately, the manner in which you can um, help reduce overall variability is by changing the way providers are paid and the way consumers' incentives work in accessing medical care. And so, you know, as the not-too-subtle title of the book suggests, um, (laughs) (laughs) rotten incentives actually do screw up healthcare, and that's priority number one, and transparency is one of it. So I think we're we're on the pathway there, but we still have a lot of work to do in the other areas. Yeah, I want to pick up on the thread that healthcare costs are really strangling the country as we start to trend towards the high teens in terms of the GDP cost of, of healthcare in this country. People are having to make very difficult choices. And the healthcare laws hopefully starting to shift some focus from fee-for-service model towards re- rewarding better outcomes. But I think we had uh, from Massachusetts, Governor, you noted that in their first round of legislation, uh, that it really was about access. And it only recently have they started to look at cost control. Is that true in the federal model? I, I think fortunately, the Affordable Care Act legislation provides the federal government with incredible leeway 
in testing uh, new payment models and then broadly disseminating them throughout Medicare. And the Center for Medicare Innovation has unequal powers in that respect. And so I'd say that the government actually does have all the tools from a regulatory perspective as well as from a management perspective to implement broad uh, changes in, in payment. It has chosen, at least to date, to take a relatively modest approach. They have a primary care initiative. They have a accountable care organization initiative. They certainly have a bundled payment uh, initiative. And so all those are ongoing. It's progress, but you know, uh, everything is relative. So when you start with a base of 100% of your care clothes paid for fee-for-service, anything less than that constitutes progress. Uh, but the latest calculations that we did um, put the combined effect of all of these implementations at, at most, 15% of all Medicare spend. So there's a long, long way to go. I actually think that CMMI and CMS wasted at least two to three years uh, in the early years after the implementation of the ACA. They could have done a lot more. Well, Francois, beyond ACA, there's ACO, the Accountable Care Organization, care delivery system that's supposed to reduce costs by better coordinating care. I like to think they reduce costs by making sure that some care doesn't need to happen. And then we have the patient-centered medical homes and the focus on coordination within primary care. But you've said that both of these models put the cart before the horse, and I think you just laid out why. So I guess the question, whether it's uh, something that was funded out of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation Center, where is payment system reform happening at a scale that's significant enough to shift towards this non-fee-for-service system? Well, there are a few. And it's actually, the better news is that it's a mixture of both public and private initiatives. Much has been said and written about the efforts of Arkansas, but they've been followed by similar efforts in Tennessee and now in Ohio, where the governor's office directly, right, because we think that from what we've seen, that's what you need. (laughs) You need the leadership from the governor's office. And so from the governor's office down, there's a very clear stated objective to move away from FIFA service and to use the purchasing power of the state through the state employee benefit plan and through Medicaid to affect that change. So that right off the bat, usually the largest employer in the state, so the state as an employer and Medicaid combined really do represent a significant purchasing power that can be used to modify payment at a scaled level for providers. So those states are doing a great job and they're continuing to experiment and grow and push. On the pure private sector side, some health plans have really embraced the concept of and the implementation of different payment models, and they have very clear strategies to move aggressively away from FIFA service, and they're doing it throughout their enterprise and throughout their network. So it's happening, but it's not happening. If you add all of this up, you're still on the fringes nationally of what constitutes anything close to a critical mass. We're speaking today with health economist Francois Debrant, the executive director of the Healthcare Incentives Improvement Institute, a not-for-profit organization focused in on improving healthcare through targeted models of payment reform. Francois, we've talked a little bit about the payer, and now we'll talk about the people. And you've said that the largest untapped resources are the consumers themselves. And increasingly, 
consumers shouldering larger responsibilities for choices regarding their health care coverage and their shopping online for health insurance plans. They're paying higher deductibles. And you say to generate real transformation in healthcare systems, we need to unleash the consumers as a true agent. And you say price transparency is one important step. What are the other tools in their toolkit? And how do you feel social media is playing a role in that? How are people really getting this information in ways that they can digest it? So first off, the industry is in its infancy compared to every single other industry, a consumer-based industry and the rest of the economy. Think about the lack of engagement of any real robust social media around, uh, whether it's um, opinions on different providers or the only area where that has had an effect to date is for treatments and very specific diseases where you have a very, very powerful social media effect in bringing parents of patients or patients themselves together. So that's one aspect of consumerism. But ultimately, what does consumerism in other industries mean? It means that as a purchaser, you're making a conscious decision. And you're making that conscious decision because you're paying out of pocket some or a portion, and you have information about quality. So you're assessing value. Some of it is objective because it's information that's provided by a third party that you respect and trust. And some of it is subjective comments by other consumers who have had an experience. It's unvarnished and it gives you a sense of what was their true experience with that particular supplier. And I know that physicians and and other clinicians and hospitals don't necessarily like to think about themselves as suppliers, but that's what they are. They're supplying a service, and that service happens to be healthcare, to 300 million consumers. And we've taken the consumer out of the equation by either shielding them from the information, only providing them with partial information, and removing their sensitivity to the purchase, or giving them full sensitivity sensitivity where it doesn't matter and no sensitivity when it does. And I'll give you an example. So in many consumer-directed health plans, high-deductible health plans, chronic care is paid out of pocket as part of the deductible expense. And a friend of mine has a child with type 1 diabetes. So obviously you need insulin in order to live. That's an expense that's paid out of pocket all the way through the deductible. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone would argue that that makes Mm -hmm. any sense whatsoever. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, preventive care, which has a marginal utility for that particular person, is covered in full. So we're giving no price sensitivity where it doesn't really matter, and we're creating price sensitivity where we shouldn't. And then if that person actually needs a significant operation, they'll go through their deductible, and then they'll be completely insensitive as to whether or not you're getting it done in a high-value location where both you have you know, competitive pricing and high quality, or a low-value uh, location where you have high price and potentially low quality. So it's just, it's just bad. You know, it's badly designed and it can and, and should change. Unfortunately, I don't see that happening anytime soon because there's no one really out there doing a lot of innovative work around employee benefit design. So this is a big issue because I think we can, in fact, and there's lots of evidence that when you do put the consumer in charge of a lot of decisions with the right information, markets work. And it's messy and it's not always right, but it works. And we've constantly, constantly tried to prevent that from happening 
in healthcare, and we just have to find a way to get it done. Well, Francois, you do see some bright spots on the horizon in your writings, in spite of the paucity of uh, available healthcare pricing and performance data around the country. And I know that you've referenced the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's Aligning Forces for Quality Effort, which you've said remains one of the few bright spots across the United States in providing transparent quality information to consumers, which is equally as important and, and maybe more than the pricing information. Tell us about that pilot program and what might we learn from their success? So it's a great reference and and yes, uh, it's one of the few bright spots because you have publicly available information on quality of healthcare. For the most part, that is highly centered around primary care. And um, as much as primary care is important, it only represents at most 20-25% of all uh, healthcare delivered in the country. And so we need to do a better job collectively at going beyond uh, information on primary care services and delving into what is the same for specialty care. And so if when a patient has an advanced chronic condition, they need specialists. <laughs> and we seem to, to, to sometimes try to ignore that and say, well, the, the, the primary care uh, 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 facility or the primary care uh, practice is going to take care of it. Not always. They shouldn't always take care of it. In fact, they should work collaboratively with specialists in the management of those patients. So there are bright spots, um, but again, it's usually highly, highly contained to one specialty, a couple of specialties, mostly primary care, and we have to go far beyond that and start looking at uh, quality of care from specialists. You know, Francois, I want to get your thoughts on payment reform and, and sort of your thinking. You, you talk about sort of achieving affordable health care, and uh, you say that we would have to remain at our current levels of spending for probably a decade. And, uh, you know, that that may be doable given the last couple of years, but certainly not over the trend line if you look back over the last couple of decades. And I, I wonder, you know, we, obviously there's a big shift trying to move from volume to value. But sort of underpinning all of this is it's 17% of the GDP, and it supports a lot of people. It doesn't get great outcomes. I think all of us would say, I don't care what you spend. If you've got good outcomes, we might think about paying you this amount of money. Tell me, though, what your thought is about, one on one hand, how to control it, and the other hand, the politics of uh, you know such a large share of the GDP and the political realities of dealing with that. How, how do you balance these out? Well, look, so this is why I'm so adamant about um, unleashing the consumer, because nothing can stand in the way of 300 million people. And I, uh, and I actually think that it's the reason, why, the, the reason why there isn't as much consumerism in healthcare is because it, it, the, of, of the level of threat that it represents to the incumbents. Um, lots of questions would have to be answered from lots of people um, who either haven't done their job well or have it done, you know, you know, have 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 um, uh, failed to do uh, what what they should have been doing. Um, and, and until you get to that point, it, it's unclear that the forces of the status quo can be changed because it's such a huge percentage of the GDP. And um, for every dollar that's spent, uh, that means it's going into someone's pocket, and those people aren't going to give it up uh, willingly. So, A, uh, the hypothesis that you could maintain current trend rates or current spend per capita at its current level for a decade, uh, I don't think is a unreasonable hypothesis at all. 
um, uh, given how much more we're spending per capita relative to any other country in, in, in the world. The only way that's ever going to happen, however, is if you truly unleash the consumer. Um, and that's not going to happen unless there's full price transparency, which, again, states have a very significant role to play, and full quality transparency, which, again, the states have a significant role to play. And and on that respect, they all fail. <laughs> I mean, yes, you have those few aligning forces for quality uh, sites, but you know, generally speaking, the states the states fail miserably at giving out information on on the quality of healthcare and on giving out information on the price of healthcare. That's the basic condition. I mean, if you actually had that, and it was recognized in each state as truly an unbiased source. At that point, first of all, all of the health plans would probably default to that information as opposed to whatever they can glean internally, which is highly imprecise. And, and it would standardize around, around those, those, uh, that information. Um, and from that point, value decisions can be made with consumers, given the fact that they're spending so much money out of their pockets. So, so, so the fascinating part to me continues to be that the, the solution itself is not particularly complicated. The politics are, to your mm-hmm. point. Um, and uh, ultimately, it'll take the leadership of several governors across the country looking at their own liabilities, pension liabilities, health care liabilities for actors and retirees over time to say, you know what, uh, we have two choices. We continue to subsidize a few incumbents at the expense of every single taxpayer in the state, or we flip this on its head. We've been speaking today with health economist Francois Debrant. Executive Director of the Healthcare Incentives Improvement Institute, a not-for-profit organization that's focused on improving healthcare through targeted models of payment reform. You can learn more about his work by going to hci3.org. Francois, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Well, thank you. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, we've seen a lot of viral emails about the Affordable Care Act. The latest to hit our inbox is one claiming that the law requires Medicare beneficiaries over age 75 to be admitted to the hospital by their primary care physicians. It's not true. The email wrongly claims that an emergency room doctor can't admit a senior to the hospital and have the cost covered as a hospital stay, that a primary care physician would have to be the admitting doctor. But there's nothing in the law that says that. We spoke with the nonpartisan Center for Medicare Advocacy, and a policy attorney there told us without hesitation that the claim is false and that there was no such requirement in the law. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services also confirmed that the law says no such thing. Medicare Part A covers hospital services when a doctor makes an order for treatment. It doesn't require a primary care physician to do so. We're not sure how this particular viral claim came about, but we do know that these anonymous messages often refuse to die. The version we've received from readers is an anonymous message that includes old bogus claims from 2009, including the falsehood that seniors age 76 wouldn't be eligible for cancer treatment. That claim can be traced to a now five-year-old letter to the editor from a former judge in Texas who misread a health care bill in the House. 
even the judge has said that his letter isn't accurate and he wishes the viral versions of it would just die. We, too, advise a healthy use of the delete key in ridding your inbox of such claims. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. The flu doesn't just exact a toll on public health. It packs a meaningful punch on the economy every year as well. Comprehensive vaccination programs have had an impact on curtailing flu outbreaks, but there's still a lot of room for improvement. In 2011, an estimated 100 million workdays and close to $7 billion in lost wages were attributed to the flu largely because many employees without paid sick leave are more inclined to work while sick. An estimated 80% of those who come down with flu-like symptoms ignore doctor's orders and go to work, leading to more widespread co-infections. In a first-of-its-kind study, researchers at the University of Pittsburgh School of Public Health decided to analyze the impact on flu outbreaks in the workplace and to ask what would the difference be if there were universal access to paid sick leave. Lead researcher Dr. Supriya Kumar says their study showed a pretty dramatic link between access to paid sick leave and a reduction in flu outbreak in the workplace. They also created another option. What if there were a new sick leave category focusing just on flu days? Their model showed that if those workers specifically diagnosed with flu were guaranteed just one paid day off to recuperate, there'd be a 25% reduction in the spread of flu. And when workers were guaranteed two paid days off, the numbers went up to a 40% reduction in co-infection. A universal paid leave program for all workers that has the potential to greatly reduce flu co-infection in the workplace, positively impacting both public health while saving billions of dollars in the overall economy? Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center. 